Hello, this is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Our sermon series for the month of October is based on the book of Matthew. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this exciting journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. Good morning, everybody. We welcome you to Wesley Memorial. Thank you for worshiping along with us. We look forward to being back indoors next Sunday, and uh, we'll continue live streaming. It's going to look a little bit different than this. The stream will be, uh, we'll always do it, but it'll be a bit more live looking. There'll be less talking directly to the camera. You're going to feel like you're really in the room a bit more. So uh, if, you, if you don't feel comfortable being in person, this will be an opportunity for you to worship wherever you are in, at your convenience. Um, I know a lot of people are uh, excited about getting indoors, and some people are still understandably feeling a little bit hesitant, and we want to honor that with people's lives and their choices and what they feel comfortable doing. So uh, there's lots and lots of options here, uh, traditional and contemporary, um, especially starting next week. As we continue of ch- uh, week three of this Gospel of Matthew series, we have gone through Matthew chapter 21, we have looked at Matthew chapter 22 as we're in today, and you're going to see that Jesus has addressed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees repeatedly, and Jesus' words are still stinging, ringing in their ears as he calls out um, how they profess to love God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him, and that God has come and uh, has desired for the nation of Israel to uh, serve in his kingdom, and because of their will, uh, unwillingness to do that, they will be cast out, and other people will come in, um, that's really me and you, Gentiles, and redeemed Jews, to come in and serve the kingdom of God as God has called them to. So when Jesus has done all of this harsh teaching against them, understandably, they're a little bit upset. And uh, they want to trap Jesus into, into his own words. So this sermon today is called The State and the Soul. And we're going to see this tension that existed even back then between uh, the church, if you will, and the state. But I'm calling this the state and the soul, Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth. And show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? And they answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. So first, the state. The Pharisees were ardent nationalists. They opposed the Roman rule. They opposed the Roman poll tax. They opposed the entire idea of Roman occupation. Now, interestingly enough, there's a group here called the Herodians. The Herodians, they supported the Romans. The Herodians supported the, the Herods. That's why they got their name. The, the Herods were, in a sense, the, the face and the voice of the Roman Empire. They were the governors over Judea and places that the Romans would occupy. So King Herod, the Herodians. So there's 
Pharisees and Herodians in the same place, trying to trap Jesus. Now, the Romans occupied Judea in 63 BC, and it wasn't until about 70 years later, in 6 AD, the Romans started to enact a tax upon the people that lived there. And the Romans would typically do a general existence tax. Simply because you exist in their land, we're going to tax you. So if you live on Rome's ground, you've you got to pay. If you breathe our air, you drink our water that we occupy, you have to pay. You have to pay rent. But this was in stark contrast to the worldview of the Pharisees. They would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is God's air. This is God's water. This is God's land. You can't charge us for that. And so you would see a lot of zealot Jewish uprisings that would raise up and try and overthrow the Roman occupation. Great clashes, thousands of Jews getting killed. And so the Jews and the Pharisees, they refused to believe or profess the Roman um, proclamation that Caesar is God, which Rome would typically always say. Because they would think, you know, if Caesar's God, he's a terrible God at that, and we refuse to do it. So you have one group that hates Rome, teaming up with another group that loves Rome, and they're trying to trap Jesus. The Herodians hate Jesus because he stands in the way of their political aspirations. The Pharisees hate Jesus because he claims to be the Messiah. Jesus' very presence, it challenged the, the political and socioeconomic structures, not just of that day, but any day. And he stood in the gap of tension and tried to bridge this divide. These two groups were diametrically opposed to each other, Herodians and Pharisees, almost like Democrats and Republicans at this point in our history. They were, they were at different sides of the aisle, if you will. And yet here you see them reach across the aisle with the unfortunate goal of trying to trap the Son of God in his own words. Now, they start with insincere flattery. Verse 16, you know that you're sincere. You teach the ways of God in accordance with the truth. You don't regard people with partiality. They're trying to butter him up. They're trying to sweet talk him. And Jesus sees right through it. And then they get down to the question they really want to ask. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor of Rome? You've got Roman haters and lovers watching this question. Either way, we've got him. Either way, he's going to infuriate one half of the audience or another. They're trying to ambush him. But Jesus, aware of their malice, says, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? You know, when Jesus asks a question to us or to anyone, he wants to expose the motive. When Jesus asks the question, he knows the answer. He knows who's on the coin. But he wants to know if they know the answer, the deeper answer. He wants you to know the answer. So he says, show me a denarius. Probably about 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, this movie came out called Jerry Maguire. Maybe you've seen Jerry Maguire. Cuba Gooding Jr. plays the role of a professional football player, and Tom, and Tom Cruise is his agent. And it is Tom Cruise's only agent as he is about to go out of business. And so Tom Cruise is desperately trying to keep 
Cuba Gooding Jr. as his agent. And Cuba Gooding Jr. is already a, a somewhat successful football player. And he says to Tom Cruise over the phone, those famous words, show me the money. And you heard it repeated over and over again. He already had some money, but he wanted a big time, big time contract and for his agent to come through for him. But when Jesus says here, show me the money, it's not quite the same as the movie because Jesus didn't have it. He didn't have the money. He didn't have any money. Sorry, Bible prosperity teachers. Jesus was poor. He owned nothing. He didn't even have a place to sleep. He would sleep in other people's homes. The Son of God was, in effect, homeless. He didn't even have a denarius to use as an illustration. And it got me thinking, how much is one denarius worth today? Well, back then, they would use pure silver. They would pour it into a mold and cast it. And so that amount of silver, which is about the size of a dime today, would be worth roughly $3.50. It might not sound like a lot of money, but back then, that's a lot of money, especially if you got paid two of those a day, which scribes back then uh, would get paid. They get paid about two denarius a day. And, you know, one denarius, you could buy a cup of wine, you could buy some food and a place to sleep. So if you got paid two of those a day, well, you're doing pretty well. Or even one a day, you got paid extremely well. On one side of the coin, it would say, it would have an image of Tiberius, the great nephew of Caesar Augustus. And Tiberius became emperor in 14 AD. And it would be inscribed, Tiberius, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, there would be a Latin phrase. It would say Pontifex Maximus. Now, if you're a Catholic or you know people who are Catholic, that's the same title ascribed to the Pope. Pontifex Maximus. The word pont in Latin means bridge. Pontifex Maximus means chief bridge builder. The emperor represented the people to the gods and the gods to the people. See, the emperor wasn't just a ruler. He was, in effect, a priest. He was an intermediary between the gods of Rome and the people. He was divine. So when, at least they believed he was divine, when Tiberius claimed to be the son of Augustus, he was saying he was the son of God. So Jesus is holding a coin. The son of God is holding a coin of a man who claimed to be the son of God. He could have all authority to cast down that idea of authority if he chose to do so. So a lot is on the line when Jesus asked, is asked this question. What's more important, Jesus, the soul or the state? What do we do with that tension? My grandmother, God rest her soul, had a beautiful coin collection. When I was a teenager, a young teenager, she would let us look at it. And it was coins going back, some of them into the 1700s. She had a few from uh, the 19th century. She had the, the Indian nickels and all these different things. And, and she even had Confederate money. She had Union money. She had all this old stuff. I still remember the smell, that coppery, rich smell that those old coins had. And she had money from the Civil War, as I said. Now, in the Civil War, the first time that the words, in God we trust, was put on coins was in 1864. We were in the midst, of course, in the massive civil war, a war that almost destroyed our country that took over 500,000 lives. I think it was more than that, actually. And in that destructive time in our history, 
there was a call to put in God we trust on that coin to unite people, to let them think about love, to think about common shared values, to say we are a people that trust in God. And so if you have the coin, it shows you belong to that country. Governments can ascribe value onto currency, as they should. The state can ascribe value onto currency, but only God can ascribe the value of a human soul. So it's back to the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because no matter what he says here, you would think he's going to offend somebody. If he opposes the tax, well, he's in trouble with the Roman government and seeking to overthrow uh, the government. And, but if he approves of the tax, the Pharisees can have him drawn up as a Roman sympathizer. But he shocks them by choosing both. When he says, give to the emperors what's the emperors and give to God the things that are God. Jesus shows that the sovereignty of God can happen still in the midst of occupied territory. Caesar can tax our land, but he cannot tax our souls. This begs the question, many times when people read the Bible, the first thing they ask is, what does this mean to me? We automatically do that, and it's a natural way to read things. What does this mean to me immediately? But that's really the last question you should ask, if you even ask it at all. The real question to ask first is, what did it mean to the original audience? What did it mean to the people that heard these words? Let's start there. What did it mean when Jesus said, give to Caesar or the emperor what is the emperor's, give to God what is God? What, how did they react to that? Well, if you're an ardent, somewhat conservative nationalist like the Pharisees, Well, Jesus' command, give to God what's God's. They would think, well, I'm already doing that. I like to show it off in the streets, actually. So that's not a problem. But when you want me to give to Caesar what's Caesar's, I don't want to do that. So he challenges them on some idolatry of their lives. To those on the other side, Jesus says, give to God what is God's. To the Herodians, well, they don't want to do that. They only want to give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But you do need to give to Caesar what is his, that you love to do that. That's not a problem. He's challenging, stepping on some toes. He calls out both sides of this political divide and shows the failure of both. He makes it clear, though, that you can do both without compromising your character, that God has rights on eternity and on our souls. His answer affirms that, yes, Christians are subject to the laws of whatever land we may find ourselves. However, does that mean that Christians are called to be doormats in accordance with the edicts of the state? It's kind of a complicated question, really. If you read Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul writes this, writing from Rome, he writes, "...let every soul be subject to governing authorities." There is no authority except those ordained by God. So that sounds pretty clear. But again, let's look at the context. What did it mean to its original audience? When Paul wrote those words in Romans 13, who was in charge? Who was in charge over Rome? Who was in charge over the modern world at that time? Well, it was Emperor Nero. Famous Emperor Nero. A man who was a definite sexual pervert. A man who had his own mother killed a man who was a confirmed megalomaniac, a man who apparently, by legend, fiddled while Rome 
burned. A man who sent armies that killed nearly one million Jews in 66 AD, eventually leading to the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's who was in charge when Paul wrote those words, to be subject to the governing authorities. And there's no record or evidence of Christians mounting violent protests against that sort of oppression. So Christians were trying to honor God, but there's still an element where we do resist the government that I will get into. We don't do it with physical force. We don't do it with, with boycotts or things of that nature, but we do it with the message of Christ and the gospel. Because look at Acts chapter 4 and 5. Peter and other apostles, they're whipped and they're beaten and they're thrown in prison and they're commanded not to preach the gospel any longer. But what do they do? The next day they get up, they go outside and they still preach the gospel. They directly disobeyed the orders of the governing bodies of that time. And they said, should we obey God or should we obey men? See, I think we must peacefully resist government if it, the government asked Christians to violate their conscience. Things of like the nature of abortion, unjust war, or a violation of expression of freedom of religion. When do we disobey? If the government calls you to disobey Christ. Otherwise, I obey the traffic laws. I'll pay my taxes. We'll give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but we'll give to God what belongs to to God. But what belongs to the state? The physical things we see, taxes, property, things of that nature, the protection of people, the creation of borders, if you will. But what belongs to God? How do we give to God what's God's? God doesn't want your money. How do we give God what belongs to him? Well, there's the state and there's the soul. The soul is what belongs to to God. Look at this story again from Matthew we're reading. The tension of this state and soul, church and state, it existed even back then. Many today want to remove God from the public square more than ever, even taking God out of the pledge of allegiance. But who are they trying to please? It's really a worldview predicated by fear. Many times you've heard this phrase a lot, of course, separation of church and state. Let's separate church and state. You've got to keep them out of each other. And usually that phrase is used as a way of getting God out of the state. But that is taken dramatically out of context. Because when that idea was proposed in the First Amendment, when it was proposed um, by Thomas Jefferson and many of the letters he wrote, he used that phrase, separation of church and state. It was under the understanding that they came from Europe where the state regularly used the church for political means. King George was famous for using the Church of England to promote his own agenda. Separation of church and state is intended to protect the church, not the state. All must be reminded that democracy is built on the unstated truth that all people are children of God. All souls bear the image of God, whether they were Christians or not. And therefore, they are deserving of basic inalienable rights. You see how this fundamental shared value can dictate policy, if you will. We don't even think about it sometimes. Sometimes we take it for granted. 
But what happens when you remove this belief that all people bear the image of God? Every soul is valuable in the eyes of God. What happens when you take that idea out of the public square and we want to not have that tension of church and state anymore? This might be a somewhat dramatic example, but if you look at the communist rulers throughout history, they are the ones that have shed the most blood in the history of the world. It's not even close. Look at Hitler. Over 12 million people killed. Look at Mao during the Great Revolution in 1958, 1962. 45 million people killed. Look at Stalin, famously in the USSR, over 7 million. You can go on and on. Look at modern-day North Korea, Pol Pot in Indonesia, even Imperial Rome who had a practical atheism, they were worshiping false gods. See, when the state refuses to value the thing that God values, all bets are off. When governments refuse to value the human souls, the primary reason for inalienable right, there's no longer a check on the system, and human beings are then seen as less than human and therefore expendable. This is the power of theology, really, of shared belief, of this this is how it shapes our policy and our inalienable rights, whether we acknowledge it or not. The Bible affords every human soul certain rights simply because you are made in the image of God. And the pastor, Gino Geraci, has a great quote about this where he said, a government can declare the value of a coin, but only God can declare the value of a human being because he made you. And it goes back to the psalmist saying, I know that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. See, coins, they can be stamped with an image. And that image could bear the owner of that coin who gives it its value. But like a coin, when you and I come to Christ, we are stamped with a renewed image of God on our hearts and on our souls, the spirit of God regenerating us from the inside out, making us new, stamped with his image and not any Lord, just our image. See, when you receive Jesus as Lord, you haven't, if you haven't re re received Jesus as Lord, I should say, you have not given to God what is truly God's. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's? Sure, most of us do that. If we don't do it, we go to jail. But give to God what's God's? How do you give to God what already belongs to him? You give back to him what is his, that he loves more than anything else, and that's your soul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your wise words in this passage about the importance of giving to you what belongs to you and returning it back to you. And God, we pray that we are a people that walk in wisdom during perilous times in this history of our nation especially. And I pray, God, that you truly do guide our steps, that we follow your lead and the leading of your Holy Spirit to be a people that honor you, that honor the country in which we live, that do so with a good witness to those around us, to, lo to love our neighbor in that way, but God, to give to you what's yours, what always has been, what always will be, to give you our hearts and our souls. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.